Welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. There's our 10-minute lesson series, which aims to educate and inform listeners on a particular area of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people need to know. Our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations of past events. And our interview series, where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. This week, we're joined by Anne-Marie McGowan from the National Economic and Social Council, or NESC for short. And she's going to talk to me about her work on the Irish welfare system, with a focus on a recent paper on gender, family and class. We hope you enjoy it. Firstly, I suppose, Amory, thank you very much. I know you're a very busy lady. So we may begin where I always begin because we have listeners actually all across the world. So you might just let them know what NESC is. Okay. Well, NESC is uh, a government agency under the Department of the Taoiseach, which is the Irish Prime Minister. And it was set up in 1973. Uh, It consists of a council of members. So they're um, drawn from the social partners, their employers, trade union members, people from the community and voluntary sector, people from the environmental sector, secretary generals of government departments and independent nominees. So they, their job is to advise the Taoiseach on strategic policy issues relating to economic, social and environmental issues. So the research staff in NESC, and I'm one of them, we would draft reports for the NESC work programme and then the NESC council would debate them and then they are approved by government. But there's a huge amount there and, and this particular paper is a background paper to an overall welfare system piece of work that you're doing isn't that right but this one is concentrating on gender family and class that's right right and I suppose I mean if I kind of go back to the very beginning we take social welfare for granted we take the fact that we live in a welfare state for granted you know the the welfare state is still quite gendered yeah it is quite gendered um I suppose it reflects you know when it was set up and some changes since. But yeah, it's true, it is still quite gendered. Current welfare system does reflect when it was created. And yes. it is that sort of male breadwinner, female caregiver model. Now, I know in, in the in the research, you've sort of said that you could say that it's moved more towards a primary breadwinner, mm-hmm. but that there's still a lot of negative impacts for women as the main carers due to that sort of legacy of that approach. So what I'd like to do is maybe just go back down through the report because you've picked out all of these sections where women are impacted by policy and the first one is the qualified adults payment so my understanding of that is if one adult in the household is unemployed that they can depending on the setup of the household they're able to get a separate welfare payment for an adult who's dependent on them which is usually a spouse there's no there's no onus on the person who's getting that qualified adult payment to have to do anything, which is very unlike a lot of other social welfare payments. Yes. But at the same time, then, that is actually a disservice in a way because they're not, they're not engaging in any job activation 
activities they're not they're not getting access to training they're not building up credits they're not looking you know it's, it's going to impact on their pensions would i be right in thinking is that is that how all of that sort of pans out then um well i suppose there the only uh, requirement really is that the income of the qualified adult would be less than 310 euros a week at the time that we were doing this work, which is in 2018. So that may have changed slightly. So it is a kind of income related payment. So it has a number of impacts. I suppose one of the really strong ones is that it's automatically paid to the what's called the main claimant. So the person who first applied for uh, the payment. Um, so that means that the qualified adults who are about 90% female from the most recent data we have um, don't get a, a separate payment directly to themselves. And they can uh, apply to have some of the payment paid to themselves, but they need to know that they can do this and they're not contacted by intro. So they can't find out that they can do this unless they go and look for independent advice, for example, from the Citizens Information Board. And um, they can also apply if, for example, you know, the main claimant isn't giving them enough money for the household, maybe in a case where there is gambling or other addiction problems. Um, and because of that, um, a qualified adult applying to have some of the, the payment made directly to her is often seen as a household where this may be happening. So it's kind of means that it puts people off applying to yeah. get the payment themselves. And then, as you said, there's a number of impacts in relation to whether or not the qualified adult can avail of activation services or training. So um, they can proactively go and look for this training or activation supports when we were doing the report, that was the case. But again, they have to know that they can do this. Um, and we've heard like differing reports when we were doing the report about how easy it is for the qualified adult to access these kind of supports. Um, the IONOU have told us that qualified adults find it very difficult to activate or to access these supports when they look to do that. So there has been some attempts to change this um, over recent years, but I'm not sure how much it has actually changed in practice. 90% of it is, is female qualified adults. So if they are currently engaged in caregiving or child rearing duties, the longer you're out of the workforce, the harder it can be to get back in. Whilst I appreciate that a welfare payment, do the, the jobs activation piece of a job seekers payment that you must be looking for full time work. And obviously, if you're at home with kids or doing other caregiving duties, you don't have that pressure. But at the same time, if you've been out of the workplace for maybe 15 or 16 years, you know, I mean, if the, the youngest is now in, you know, doing a leave and search, you might want to think about getting back in. As you said, you've got, you don't even know where to start sometimes if, if you've been out of it for that long and you don't know where to even engage with the system that as a qualified adult, the onus is on you to go and find out Mm -hmm. how you get into it and how you get back into the workplace and how you can access training um, and I, I yeah was that, that kind of coercive control piece as well I just thought as you said was 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 quite interesting that these are adults with no independent income yeah so now it's it's strange because uh, the qualified adult of a pensioner is paid the income directly to themselves and I don't know why it's been decided that there's a different um, system for adults of working age. 
Um, but I know like one thing about qualified adults is that there has been no study of them mm. or you know what what they're doing their education levels what they would like to do if they find this very constraining or if it suits them we we don't know um nest did some work a number of years ago on jobless households so we did interview some qualified adults then who had been in employment themselves and what really struck them very strongly was the fact that they were not really seen by the system as workers. Yeah. They felt that they were expected to stay at home and look after their children. And in this case, they did have children. But one of the women told us about how <clears throat> they were looking for some exceptional needs payments for furniture for their children who were growing out of their existing beds. And when she went to the intro office to ask about that, she was told that they couldn't talk to her because it wasn't her claim, it was her husband's claim. Yeah. So she felt very, and she had been working full time until they both lost their job during the crash. And another interesting thing that you could see from this in a number of the families that we met in that study was that the, the male partner or spouse um, was working in building, which was in the complete slump then. Mm -hmm. But the female partners had both been working in office jobs. So if the state had focused on supporting them into work, they would have been much more likely to be able to find a job because they had skills that were more sought after at the time. But instead, the setup was that the main claimant was the um, person who was uh, interacted with by intro and the main claimant ended up being the male partner, even though both of the women and the men had been on job seekers benefit separately as individuals until their eligibility for that ran out and they went on to the means tested payment and then it became a main claimant and a qualified adult and the qualified adult in this case did not know that you could uh, ask for some of the payments we brought to you separately and um, they didn't know that they could both become um, job seeker separately on job seekers assistance. No, that's just one case, but I think yeah. it models some of the things that happen and some of the ways in which the QA system, even though it does support families um, who, you know, and who need this support, maybe hasn't quite kept up with the position of families in the labour force. It's, but it's even more than the labour force, because if you have no independent income, you've no access to credit bank accounts, post office accounts, if you've got no proof of income and if you've got no proof of paying bills, it can be very hard to access stuff, I suppose, in this, you know, within the system, like everywhere looks for, uh, you know, two pay slips or, you know, two bills and a piece of ID. But it's the ripple effect of, of in the society that we live in, <clears throat> excuse me, that you need to have all of these bits to prove who you are yeah, and I know how to access. This woman did talk, she didn't talk about that issue actually, but she did talk about the fact that when she and her husband were both employed, that he had paid the mortgage and she had paid all the bills. So the bills were all still in her name, but she had to wait for him to transfer money to her account to pay them, which he did, of course. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she was just talking about the fact that, you know, she no longer had an independent income, yeah. even though they were both unemployed. Um, to be able to pay the bills directly from her own account. Um, she did talk about the fact that she got to spend more time with her children, which she liked. So I suppose, you know, it's difficult, you know, that balance of, you know, being in work and also being with your children is something that a lot of parents want and is difficult to get. Um, 
and I suppose the welfare system, it allows it in some ways and it makes it, and it maybe pushes you towards that in other ways. So it's, you know, you can see a lot of complexities there. Uh, that's the thing. It, it was, as you said, it was where sort of different systems as well looked at you slightly differently. So as a pensioner, uh, your right to the payment was linked to your partner's contributions and you got that as your, as your own payment. But even the way as a married couple, the revenue will treat you as a married couple and welfare will treat you as a married couple. Whereas if you're a cohabiting couple, welfare will treat you as a couple, but revenue won't. So revenue won't give you the tax benefits of being a cohabiting couple, but welfare will will view you as a cohabiting couple. So sometimes the, 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 the dots aren't joined sometimes across. I just thought, again, that was there's a lot of people kind of caught there as well. Yeah, it's true. It's and you can kind of see as well, you know, even the situation for, let's say, you know, women in general, like if they're qualified adults, they're not required to work for the qualified adult payment to be paid in relation to them. But if they're a lone parent and their youngest child is aged over seven or over 14, then, you know, they are required to look for work. Um, and then there is kind of other interesting things in relation to you know, widow's pension, for example, if, you know, you're entitled to a contributory widow's pension, you're paid that, you know, whether you work or not. Um, whereas if you're a lone parent, that's not the case. So there's all these kind of different ways in which partners and women, well, they are mostly women, mm -hmm. are treated depending on the different payments. And of course, that tax um, issue is, is yeah, very evident. As you said, if you're, um, if you're not married to each other, you can't um, transfer your tax credits to each other um, <clears throat> and I'm not sure why you know that system was set up I suspect it maybe because most married couples had young children when that was in place whereas now it's kind of changed quite a bit and the majority of married couples don't have young children anymore but they could still avail of this uh, transfer of tax credits so I, in the report we say it would be useful to look at you know, could those tax credits be available on the basis of there being children, dependent children in the family rather than on the basis of marriage? Yes, yeah, I know what you mean. So that you're looking at it as a family unit and, and, and all of these different payment methods do have an impact on family formation. And I, again, you're kind of looking at sort of carers as well. And Somebody on Carers Alliance can get an, uh, an allowance for children qualified child allowance but they can't get um, an allowance for a qualified adult so <clears throat> I'm not sure why that is possibly when it was brought in maybe maybe there was um, an idea that the carer would be caring for a partner who was had a disability but obviously it doesn't have to be a partner mm. it can be you know somebody else in the family another adult who needs full-time care or indeed not in the family who needs full-time care um, carers allowances um, you know, like most of the payments, there's pros and there's cons. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the pros is that the that payment is available for as long as the person needs full time care, which is, um, you know, there's only three other countries in Europe uh, when we were doing the report who allowed such a long period uh, of time during which a carer's allowance could be paid. Um, but you know, if we look at, for example, those who take carers benefit, so that would be people who have PRSI contributions that allows them to take carers benefit, that um, allows um, 
employment to be combined with it and can be taken for up to two years from work. There's very, very few people on it. Less than 2,000 people claimed it, whereas over 40,000 people, as far as I remember, were claiming the carers allowance. So it does seem that there's kind of different patterns going on, that possibly low-income women are more likely to claim carers allowance, whereas maybe those with higher incomes are more likely to use um, tax and allowances to possibly pay for, for care. So and, and that was another part of it as well, sort of paying for care that the one of the impediments, I suppose, to we'll say again, generally speaking, women in the workplace is the cost of childcare. And yes. that the cost of childcare is in the highest in the EU for lone parents, and not only lone parents, but all women who are not high earners who find it difficult to be able to afford to work and pay for childcare in Ireland. So it is it it's it's the impact of I suppose the caring work that women do that's undervalued and goes unpaid impacts on how they interact with both the job market and the welfare market. And I saw you had in it that, um, again, it probably comes at no surprise, women in Ireland do much more unpaid caring work than their male counterparts. 296 minutes of unpaid work per day for women compared to 129 minutes for men and that men spend 344 minutes in paid work each day and women only 197. So the way the whole system is set up, I suppose, is that a lot of the work that women do is, is, is that caring, unpaid work. And that, that has a, a ripple effect, I suppose, into how the system treats them and how the system pays them to do that work. Um, yeah, I mean, the system has, the welfare system has supported women in caring roles um, through payments, I suppose. I mean, originally when it was set up, it was assumed that women were caring and they, there wasn't any payments, for example, for lone parents, for carers. And those payments were brought in um, from the 70s for lone parents and then in the 90s, I think, for carers allowance. So there is more recognition and financial support for those who are in caring roles. But there's, you know, there are a number of ways that the system works that kind of nearly push people into caring roles, you oh could God. possibly say. For example, the qualified adult payment, you know, it does allow for the qualified adult to do part time work. Um, which is great and it provides those supports for families who need it financially but you do wonder you know where is the balance between people getting trapped into kind of low paid work and how much they can leave that so you know we do have very little data on what people want to do but in the report we referred to data from the European Social Survey in 2010 to 2012 and that looked at what parents with children under 18 in Ireland wanted in terms of work and caring balance and I found that the most popular option was what they call a modernized male breadwinner model so that would be that one parent is working full-time and one part-time um, and then the next most popular option was for both parents to work full time. And the least popular option, I think only 8% of parents wanted a male breadwinner and one person at home. So it does seem that people do want to be able to have the option to work full time or part time when they have children. Um, so, you know, how much does our welfare system support that? In some cases it does and in some it doesn't. That's it. As you said, when, when you go into the job seekers system, you have to be looking for full-time work. So you can't, you can't look for part-time work as part, as part of your agreement with the welfare state is 
I'm signing on to say I am in pursuit of full-time work. I am available for full-time work. So if you are actually only looking for part-time work, strictly speaking, you know, you, you shouldn't be getting that payment. But as you said, if, if you're trying to balance the two, you may only be looking for, for, for part-time work. And so a qualified adult can work part-time with no, and look for part-time work with no, I suppose, pressure, but a job seeker adult has to look for full-time work. So there's all of these little... Yeah, there's a lot of kind of nuances and there really, because as you say, as a qualified adult, you know, you are allowed to work part-time, you can earn up to 310 euros a week um, with some level of qualified adult allowance paid to you. Um, if you're on Job Seekers Transition as well, which is kind of a modified Job Seekers Allowance payment for adult parents with children aged between seven and 14, you can look for part-time work as well. And if you are a job seeker who's to be available for full-time work, but you can only find part-time work, you can work part-time. So there are all these kind of nuances. And in 2006, the Department of Social and Family Affairs, as it was at the time, published um, proposals for how uh, parents would be supported on means-tested payment under the welfare system. So they proposed that um, pair, you know, what would now be qualified adults and lone parents who had children under seven would be paid a parenting allowance and that that would be the full rate, you know, same as uh, job seekers allowance. Um, and that then after the age of seven, that when the youngest child had reached the age of seven, then they think they would move on to a kind of a job seekers allowance uh, payment and be able to avail of activation supports. But that report also recommended that people would be allowed to seek part-time work um, when they were on a welfare payment, not just full-time work. So the system does recognise this. So I think in 2006, you know, it was an economic boom. The system obviously was open to allowing people to seek part-time work. But then when some of the recommendations from that were implemented, um, <clears throat> starting from 2014, 2015, um, they didn't apply them to qualified adults. So that system of allowing people to look for part-time work wasn't extended out. So I think it is linked a lot to the costs of um, paying job seekers allowance to those looking for part-time work as well as full-time work. So that's, I mean, you know, and, and the difference probably between looking for part-time and full-time, it does go back to childcare. And that's, I mean, in, in the report, you know, that it's the lack of support for non-family childcare, the assumption of maternal care do support that breadwinner model. And I, I was reading, now it's decades old, but the sociology of housework, so it's from the 70s, and she's referring back to reports from previous to that, but I doubt this has changed much. One child adds 23 hours to housework time, two children adds 35 hours to housework time, and three or more adds 41 hours to housework time. Now that may have been cloth nappies uh, hand washed <laughs> boiled washed and hand washed but you know mm -hmm. I mean you know even even with all the mod cons the basics I suppose of, of looking after babies and children doesn't really change because it's still washing and dressing and feeding and going to the park to feed the ducks and going for a go on the swings and more washing and feeding and cleaning and putting to bed and getting up and all that kind of stuff so it, it is it comes back I think to that how do you how do you support families maybe and, and primarily maybe women within the welfare system? As you said, 
so you know the, the payments are are geared towards a, a time and a place and as society evolves and as, as society changes that it needs to catch up in some way so the, the recommendations or not not necessarily the recommendations but you, you end the report with a series of questions yeah that are, are i suppose to allow the conversation to to continue so that's the first one is what changes can be made to support qualified adults adults to access their own income and activation supports um so that's that goes back to that piece that we were talking about at the beginning i suppose is what do people want really do they want activation supports do they want their own income does it suit them to mm. be where they are i mean i wonder how big of a piece of a research that would be well i mean we know that there's a almost 90,000 qualified adults yeah. so there are on a range of payments like I think about half are related to job seekers allowance payments and then there's a good chunk related to different kinds of disability payments so it would obviously you know be quite a big piece of work but um, I'm just thinking that when the Department of Social Protection were looking at extending PRSI benefits to um, the self-employed, they did a survey of 2,000 um, self-employed people. So, you know, that was something that you could do. Now, there's some complications in that the Department of Social Protection, when we were doing the report, legally wasn't able to contact qualified adults. But I suppose that could be changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're not part of the system then, sure they're not, in a way, because no payment plus. Yes, so I don't know exactly what data they do collect on them. I know that there is more data collected on qualified adults of people on disability uh, and validity payments because there was new computer systems brought in which collected more data and allowed it to be easily collated and seen. So at this stage, there could be more data on the qualified adults of those who are in job seekers payments as well. But I think, you know, it is quite a big group. It would be very helpful to do research on their position, like, you know, how many are working, what are their qualifications, you know, how many young children do they have? Um, but I, I think as well, just to get back to some of the other points that you made, you know, the assumption of maternal childcare is changing in some of the state policies. So we do have the affordable or national childcare scheme being brought in now. So it would be interesting to see what the impacts of that are. The SRI has modeled that it would, be of most benefit to lone parents. So we wait and see, hopefully that is the case because they often, they have very, very high poverty rates when they're reliant mm -hmm. on welfare. And the other thing is that we now have um, paternity benefit and parental benefit. So they're, you know, relatively low paid if you look at other countries, but it is a recognition that fathers um, are involved in the care of children. So that's quite a recent change really, even though they have been involved in care of children for quite a long time. Um, I, for me, I often think it's a pity that the um, unpaid maternity benefit can't be transferred to fathers because we know that there's quite a few families where the mother is a higher income earner, so they can't make a choice within the family on who could benefit from that. And I know that the government just wants to bring in leave you know an entitlement to leave for parents when the child is aged under one year because it's very beneficial for them to have um the kind of parental care for one year but to me i would think well why why does it have to be the mother you know maybe for the first few months obviously while she's recovering or 
the breastfeeding, but to have more choice there, mm -hmm. I think would be helpful personally. But there is a change in the expectation that it's just mothers who would carry out the care. So that is something that's changing. And that's, I mean, again, at the very end of the report, the constitutional convention comes in. They're still looking to keep the, the nub of it, I suppose, in the constitution. Yeah, well, since we wrote the report now, the new Citizens Assembly focusing on gender equality has um, come out with their recommendations. And like they're very strong on recognising caring and having more, you know, choice for parents about how to combine work and care. Um, and they also recommended individualising the social welfare system. So I don't know at this stage what proportion of the um, the assembly recommended that, but it's interesting that uh, quite a number of things that are looked at in this report that the citizens assembly, you know, from their recommendations, it would seem that they would want to see a lot of changes to some of these things like the fully individualized social welfare system and more support for caring. Um, and they voted to remove the um, article in the constitution that kind of links caring in the home to the mother mm -hmm. uh, to make that more gender neutral. But they, they don't want to get rid of it, but recognizing the huge importance of care in family and in societies and supporting that, but in a more gender neutral way, I suppose. Um, I don't want to make any errors in kind of how I summarize what they've said, but I think that would be the nub of, of what they were, what they recommend. And that's the thing, you know, that the rest of the, the other questions that you end that report with are, you know, the social, the social welfare system matching the preference of families. And at the last one you have there is the combat poverty amongst children and lone parents. It's looking to see welfare, say, welfare system taxation and childcare, how they all... Yeah, how they link... A lot of those in poverty in Ireland, those with the highest rates are those who'd be dependent on welfare. So, for example, lone parents, people with a disability and um, the unemployed. So I think there's maybe more of a link between being dependent on welfare, not having a market income and poverty in Ireland. So it's looking at how can you support those who are dependent on welfare payments to have more market income, because that seems to be... Um, you know, we can see the families that are work rich are better off than those that are work poor. Um, so that I suppose is about looking at our education and training. You know, how do we support people into, um, you know, jobs that can pay enough to cover their costs of childcare and housing, or how can the state support those housing and childcare costs? And, you know, the national National Childcare Scheme does look at how those uh, costs can be better afforded. And then the HAP scheme did try to kind of end the, um, the, the link between being on welfare and getting housing support. So it allows people to keep their housing supports as they move into work and just pay a portion of their income. But of course that's run into difficulties because of our lack of housing supply. So there has been some changes to try and support people who are on welfare to move into work and support them with the costs of housing and childcare. But it's still difficult to do that, I suppose. We've done our report this week, our employment monitor went out this week. So, you know, looking at the CSO data to look at just that to see who has been impacted and where they've been impacted and how old they are and what gender they are. And 
what was interesting was more men than women had been impacted so their work had been affected by covid but more women than men didn't expect to go back to work yeah i think i remember looking at some of the data earlier on yeah. you know in the first year more women had been on the pub which has less of a link with employment whereas the um the twss there was a link with the employer mm. still so yeah well Yes, there, but there's a lot of changes, really, if you looked at the different periods and the different types of lockdowns, yeah. the gender impacts really varied a lot, depending on what time you were looking at. So yeah. as you say, be the longer term picture, how well the different sectors recover yeah. as we open up. A qualified yeah. adult payment I hadn't really ever thought too yeah. much about. Yeah, and I really wish there was some research on them, you know, to find out because Mary Murphy in Maynooth now, mm. she has asked a number of times, why were the job seekers transition changes only applied to lone parents? Why not to qualified adults as well? I think it's a good question to ask, but I think, you know, we would need to talk to lone parents to find out what are their circumstances and then <clears throat> as well, learn from the experience of applying job seekers transition to lone parents because there wasn't adequate childcare supports mm. And, you know, for some people that was very difficult. But I know from doing some work with um, a charity that supported lone parents, you know, they said, you know, as with qualified adults, like assuming or, you know, you know, paying for people to be on a payment for years, you know, until their youngest child was 18 in relation to lone parents. It meant that, as you said earlier, they're very, very distant from the labour market. Mm -hmm. If they want to move back to work or to training then, it's it's a long it's a very big move you know yeah. because for a very long time they've been away from it um and they did know that you know those on one parent family payment were on average on it for about seven years so that's why they looked at supporting people to stay on it till the youngest child was seven and then look at um moving to activation and training um but again you know who are the winners and losers here you know yeah, yeah, what other supports are needed and we don't really know much about that even for lone parents um, and definitely not for qualified adults so it's fingers crossed we, we might be chatting this time next year about an amazing piece of research that you've done on qualified adults okay thank you so much Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.